Hello everybody, welcome back to Odd Dentist, no rest till we're dead. I did use August as my name last episode, but I've decided to use my real name to be held accountable and to stand behind what I put out into the world. So, hello, officially. I am your co-host, Mia Sato, and I use she-they pronouns, and I contemplate my identity while having multiple crises late at night. And I'm your other co-host, still Stella Novak, the kind of person to enroll in an astrophysics course at 1am and never look at it again. I still use she-her pronouns. Today on Audentes, we'll be reviewing American dialects and their role in classism, herbs and recipes, and common misconceptions surrounding bisexuality. Our transcript and sources are linked in the description below through a hyperlink and are fact and bias checked prior to publishing, with disclaimers when necessary. Enjoy! To preface our episode, I'd like to clear up a few definitions again, although I think it might become a habit in my segments to clarify things. And I think we should begin with identifying the important difference between accents, vernacular, dialects, and language. Um, Accents mean a distinctive manner of expression, either typical of a group or people of natives slash residents of a region or an individual's characteristic inflection, tone, or choice of words. Vernacular means the dialect or language of a region or country, or of being the normal spoken form of a language or characteristic of a certain time period, place, or group. And so an accent is attributed to pronunciation and is completely separate from having a specific linguistic structure, although it can have influences from another language. Vernacular can also be used in terms of slang, as this definition allows us to understand that vernacular means daily speech used in an area, and so if slang is used on a daily basis, it can be understood as that region's vernacular, although it is not always the case for defining formal speech as slang is informal. Dialect, on the other hand, means a form of language which is particular to an area that uses some of its own words, grammar, and pronunciation, adopted because of the people and environment around an individual. This directly indicates that dialects are systematic and regular with distinct and deliberate structure, and it exists apart from social status. However, it is clear, and I will get into this as well, that there are certain dialects that are favored and unfavored due to societal stigma. Okay. Now to make something clear, everyone speaks some dialect of a language depending on where one is regionally from. And so for me, I have a Taiwanese dialect when speaking Mandarin, I have the standard Tokyo dialect when I speak Japanese, and I took a New York Times quiz on uh, what American dialect I have. (laughs) So yeah, according to this diagram, my dialect is either from Los Angeles, Boston, or Honolulu. I've only been to Boston, so my dialect is um, all over the place apparently and from places that I've never been. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So I started to wonder about dialects, and I've noticed that there isn't a distinctive dialect for Chinese or Japanese Americans, except using our heritage languages with English while talking to our families, like how my household uses three languages continuously to talk with each other. Hey, I didn't know that you were trilingual. That's really cool. Not everyone can say that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It can get a little bit... I think weird for some people to listen to our family conversations because I'll talk with my mom in Mandarin and I'll talk with my dad in Japanese and I'll speak to them both in English and they'll respond in three different languages. <laughs> so yeah, that's... Oh, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> my dad speaks Hungarian, so I'm actually pretty used to hearing a lot of foreign language around the house. You Unfortunately, I don't speak Hungarian. Yeah. You've been Unfortunately, I learn. don't... 
Yeah, I wish I spoke Hungarian, but unfortunately, since I grew up in the U.S. and I went to an English school, kind of missed the bullet there. Yeah, my mother doesn't speak it either, so we can't have conversations in Hungarian, but a lot of our family friends do speak the language, Mm -hmm. and so I hear a lot of it around the house. Some people say my dad sounds like a mafia uh, chief (laughs) or something, which is entirely bizarre to me because I've never known him as anything other than my sweet, loving father. So, yeah, language is very interesting in the household. Right, and and a lot of the linguistic, like, tones of each language, you know, like we associate German or like, you know, uh, like Hungarian, like you said, with like more angry sounding, even though it isn't. Yeah, right. exactly. And he could be talking about puppies and think people will think he's arranging a drug deal. Like, it's it's insane. <laughs> right, right. And it's like when you are of like um, first generation or like even fourth, blah, 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 you kind of start to lose some of your uh, heritage languages if it's not kept up. And mm-hmm. in the course of my research, that I found that Japanese Americans and like many other minorities and in individual families, I found that they thought it was a disadvantage to have a distinct dialect separate from the white majority, you know, especially in light of the internment camps. And therefore, as a way to assimilate, fourth generation or yonset, Japanese Americans would have no distinctive speech pattern from their white counterparts. Um, However, for the dialects that remain strong in our country, like the Appalachian, Cajun, or African-American vernacular English, otherwise known as AAVE, there are classist connotations embedded to them like irremovable tattoos. Um, these harmful connotations emerge as a sort of gatekeeping to what is understood as educated and quote-unquote acceptable in society in all aspects of life. And the truth is, though, language remains fluid like it's always been and modifies itself to the era using it. And if you would remember, vernacular, as defined earlier in this episode, is also defined as characteristic of a time period or group of people. And despite this truth, there have been many arguments surrounding what proper English should sound like. In my opinion, this limits the use of language and consistently goes against what language should be accepted as. Language as defined by the dictionary is a method of human communication, whether written or spoken in a structured way. And as seen before, dialects are structured with their own grammar, words, and pronunciations. Therefore, dialects are perfectly valid in their linguistic existence and should be understood as not only a subset of a broader language, but separate in comprehension as well. There are certain uses of certain dialects that are hard to understand, confusing, or entirely foreign when I speak English, Japanese, or Mandarin, or hear them expressed by people from different regions. There are instances, in fact, a pattern where I've heard and read people criticizing AAVE and the dialects from the Appalachia or the South. Cajun English is a multifaceted amalgamation of influences from various languages, and when it is forced to assimilate, It lost a lot of its French use, although it retained some pronunciations. And similarly, AAVE is thought to be a mix of a ton of West African languages and English, or even a bilingual development through language acquisition from coerced assimilation on plantations through forceful and violent enslavement of Black folks. So, AAVE consists of diglossia, subject auxiliary inversion, and the B deletion, just to name a few. However, this dialect has become a highly contentious subject through the politicization of race, which is overall dehumanizing, as we see it through the oversimplified and incorrect label of, quote, unquote, blackcent, 
So by calling AAVE Blacksand, it blatantly reduces its complexity and validity as a dialect and ignores the fact that many in the Black community are bi-dialectal, switching from AAVE to standard American English. And the reason- Imagine having to switch between two whole different dialects and still being considered less intelligent for knowing one of them. That's right. ridiculous. You have to memorize two, if anything, that makes you more skilled in language. Right, and it is absolutely also developing, you know, your code switching. And, and the reason that the Black community has been able to develop and retain this complex dialect is also because of redlining, which we understood last episode as a construct and, you know, result of racism, which adds to its historical nuance. For sure. And through that, it causes an inability to migrate outwards due to, you know, impoverished uh, communities. And so the use of old dictionaries or exclusive dictionaries written by academics that include only one dialect to invalidate someone else's dialect is inherently classist because it imposes a sense of educational authority and superiority, which is historically more available to the higher class than to the lower classes, especially considering how certain groups are in those social castes because people from upper classes put them there. And so language is not solely for the use of academics, it is for the people. Language emerges from the people as it shifts through time, and at times we cannot understand certain Shakespearean phrases because it is not commonly used in our era any longer, but we understand it to be just as valid, and we should treat other dialects that exist in our own times just like that as well. And the Harlem Renaissance only proves that point further. During this wonderful time of energy and achievement, language through music, prose, and poetry such as Sterling Brown, Langston Hughes, and Rudolph Fischer, just to name a few, prove that language is beautiful and it is used to represent culture and in that creativity there is no set method or quote-unquote right way. AAVE is a dimensional experience and should be respected as such and to regard it as lower or lesser than is a direct demonstration of conditioned classes propaganda that continues to pervade our societal views today. And I've linked below um, in the transcript the PBS and THACO resources that also uh, link other pertinent reading material for further information as well as an interesting read from The New Yorker on the English language as I cannot fit all of the wonderful dialects and the complexities within each one in this episode. Although, I hope this introduction has opened the doors to a bigger conversation about the effect of language on society and the effect of society on language. And one of the ways that we see AAVE affecting our culture and society is through the slang that are coined through the Black queer community that have popularized it. And many of our youth or non-Black queer folks continue to use it as part of their daily vernacular today. To not attribute that aspect of our culture to those who created it and are being marginalized because of it is the language of the oppressor. We cannot cherry pick what we like about black culture without uplifting the entirety of the black community and especially the black LGBTQIA community. Thank you, Mia, for that shout out to the black queer community. You're absolutely right. We have Black queer folks to thank for many of our queer rights and vernacular today, and particularly Black trans folks. Shout out to Martha P. Johnson, for example, who is one of the most influential Black queer women to fight for equality, who we have to thank today for many of the rights we enjoy. Absolutely. And to just imagine her bravery, because, I mean, it's also, like, part of it just being tired of, like, 
being oppressed in so many other ways. Like, she was not only black, but she was also queer, and having a queer gender identity with all the other stuff, like, exacerbates just, like, how much pressure and stress she must feel on a daily basis, and yet, like, her, her positivity and just love to being herself and then, like, expressing that is just, like, inspirational and admirable. She's just... Absolutely. Yeah. She truly is queen. Yes. Her intersectionality was a formidable challenge on the side of society she lived in. And yet, at the same time, she was able to do so much for everyone. It's astounding. Rest in power. Absolutely. As a member of the LGBTQA community myself, I do notice certain language patterns that my queer friends and I use that I usually don't come up with in conversations with cisgender and heterosexual individuals. Language is such an interesting thing, and part of language is how we use labels, which is what we'll be discussing today. I identify as bisexual. By this day and age, most people understand what it means to be gay or lesbian but there are many misconceptions surrounding bisexuality. With a little luck, you'll walk away from the segment with a better understanding of the term and what it entails. Let's start with its official definition. According to the Bisexual Manifesto, (laughs) which, let's just unpack that name for a hot second, because it distinctly reminds me of the Communist Manifesto, which is hilarious, because I happen to know way more bisexual communists than I ever expected existed. But alas, I digress. Bisexuality is defined as liking genders, quote, the same and different from one's own, unquote, and liking multiple genders. That is what bisexuality is. Now let's talk about what bisexuality is not. Common misconceptions and why they're wrong. First, bisexual people are not confused, not in a transition phrase, and are not really just gay or straight. Bisexuality is a separate, fluid identity. Bisexuality is also not a phrase, not a phase, any more than any other sexual and gender identities. While it is true that some people identify as bisexual for a time, and then realize that another identity fits them better, that is not the case for every bisexual person, and should not be assumed. Second, the prefix bi, which means two, does not mean that bisexuals like only two genders, men and women. The bi and bisexual refers to the combination of homosexual and heterosexual attraction. It has nothing to do with the gender binary, or liking only two genders. There are, in fact, way more than two genders, and bisexuality recognizes that. To say that bisexuality means attraction to only men and women wrongly erases the validity of other genders. Bisexual people may be attracted to many genders beyond male and female, so long as those genders are the same and different from one's own. Third. Bisexuals do not necessarily like all genders equally. Many bisexual people have gender preferences, meaning that they can be attracted to some genders more than others. For example, I am more attracted to women and non-binary folks than I am to men, but I am still bisexual. Fourth, true bisexuality is neither trans nor non-binary exclusionary. It recognizes that there are more than two genders and that transgender men and women are real men and women and bisexual people can be attracted to transgender and or non-binary people as well as other genders. Bisexual people, like all people, may be transphobic as individuals, but that is an individual fault that is not related to bisexuality itself. Additionally, people of any and or no gender can identify as bisexual. 
gender identity and sexual orientation are separate. Fifth, bisexual people are not attracted to everyone. Like any sexual identity, bisexual folks have personal preferences and types. Personality, appearance, and compatibility are still factors of attraction. So don't assume that a bisexual person is attracted to you just because you of are you are of a gender they are attracted to. Chances are, if you're going to assume that, they probably aren't attracted to your ignorance. Period. Six. <laughs> Period. Six. Bisexual people are not more likely to cheat or be dugam du du mm. duagamous. <laughs> I always have trouble with that word. <laughs> My instinct is to say duogamous, but I know that somebody in the comments is just going to be like, "That's duagamous." That's duogamous. fine. That's fine. Okay. You understand what I'm trying to say, though. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. We're going to go with that. They do not need to be involved with multiple genders to feel complete, and they are not more prone to threesomes. Think of it this way. If you are straight, you are, are you more likely to cheat or have multiple partners? If you are monogamous, the answer is probably no. The same applies to bisexual people. Just because they experience attraction to a variety of genders does not mean that they are more likely to be involved in several relationships simultaneously. Some bisexual people also identify as polyamorous, in which case they would have several consensual relationships at the same time. But polygamy is a separate identity that exists in people of all sexual orientations, including straight or homosexual people, and it is not the same as bisexuality. Straight facts. Got him. <laughs> the final misconception is that bisexuality is the same as pansexuality. It is not. Some people still use the terms interchangeably because they are similar, and sometimes that's just fine. For other times, let me explain the difference. Pansexuality is defined as attraction regardless of gender, or as attraction to all genders. Unlike bisexuality, which is an attraction to multiple, but not necessarily all, and involves gender preferences, pansexual people do not consider gender as a factor of attraction and can be attracted to all genders. Many pansexual people consider themselves gender blind and generally fall in love with people without caring about that person's gender identity. There are similarities between the two identities. Both pansexuality and bisexuality are different from polygamy. Both identities have personal preferences and types, and both are unique, valid identities separate from other queer labels. In the end, it is up to the individual to decide which term fits them best. And finally, some individuals decide to claim neither label and instead simply identify as queer. All are valid identities. Absolutely. And I think I just want to say something really quick. This, I feel like the idea of blindness um, cannot be applied to race. I just want to say absolutely. that right now. They are feel... separate concepts. Right, yes. absolutely. I, just <laughs> I want, hear you. Yeah, I just want to put that in here right now because we have talked about race um, in, in the previous episode and this episode. And it's, you know, it's still a contentious subject, even though it shouldn't be. But race blindness actually erases the validity of um, history and of our identities in that, in that um, concept. Because instead of saying, oh, I don't see color, we should, I, we should see that that color does exist and that it has been something that has dominated a lot of sociocultural uh, concepts, um, propaganda, and trends. And so we have to honor that identity and therefore validate it 
because we see you and we hear you and we honor you through that. And I feel like it's the same with queer identities too. We see your bisexuality and we see your pansexuality and we choose to honor that because that is your reality and it has been something so hugely impactful in your life. You are absolutely correct. And I'd like to clarify something. When I say that pansexual consider pansexual people consider themselves gender blind, I mean that they don't really factor in gender into who they're attracted to, but that does not mean that they don't recognize the gender identity of their partners. Right. So pansexual people should still use the correct pronouns for their romantic partner or partners, depending on if they're polyamorous. And gender blind just refers to their attraction rather than how they interact with the people they're attracted to. Right. So thank you for clarifying that. That's very important in the way that we use language and see the world. Absolutely. Wonderful. And finally, today's section is indeed on herbs and bisexuality. So let's just spend a little bit of time talking about herbs. I thought I'd introduce you to my small herb garden, which is made up of one basil and one sage plant that I have here with me on this desk. Sinatra here is my basil plant, and she's been holding this family together for the past three months, ever since our last basil plant, basil plant, rest in peace, also named Sinatra, but who went by he, him, don't ask me why, passed away after I ate too many of his leaves. Pro tip plant parents, always snip your basil leaves by the end of the leaf stem to encourage new growth. Harvest from the top down and pick a few leaves from each stem if you can avoid cutting the whole thing. Basil is great for a variety of dishes, including pizza, pasta, soups, salads, and here's a doozy, ice cream. Believe it or not, some people put basil, strawberries, and a balsamic reduction on vanilla ice cream. Considering I like to eat my eggs with a drizzle of honey and eat guacamole with strawberry jam, I am not here to judge your food preferences. <laughs> but putting basil on an altered version of vinegar on my ice cream? Well, I shouldn't knock it till I try it, but as of now, it's a hard pass. No offense, Sinatra. Our other addition is our new sage plant, Ashley, and she's been living outdoors, and she's a little sturdier and loves the sun. Sage is often used in poultry cooking, but can be eaten by itself, too. One of my favorite ways to use sage is to fry it as a snack or a garnish. The recipe is linked below, but all you need to do is heat a skillet with some olive oil until it's simmering, and then place the sage leaves onto the oil for about 30 seconds to fry them. Season with salt, transfer onto a plate covered in paper towels, and then finally move the crunchy leaves to a serving plate to enjoy. Gordon they are crispy and delicious. <laughs> yes, go ahead, say it. Did you just call me Gordon Ramsay? Yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Sorry. That was like a, I huh? <laughs> I cannot cook for shit. Well, oh, thank you. We'll have to mark oh. this episode as explicit. <laughs> oh, our rating just went up. <laughs> anyway, if they're crispy and delicious, especially if you can get fresh shades, go ahead and use them as a garnish on other dishes as well. And you'll feel like Gordon Ramsay in no time. And yes, I've spelled time as the herb in our transcript. Of course. At me. So what are your favorite herbs, Mia? I like spinach very much. Okay, I'm not sure that's an herb, but we're going to let it pass. It's an herb in my reality. Okay, I'll respect your reality. That's great. <laughs> I find basil and sage are my top two, but, you know, I might be a little biased. 
Parsley is another winner, and thyme has its merit in certain soups, but overall I like a lot of herbs. But not all, and not equally, and not in the same ways. And that brings us back to bisexuality. Essentially, there's very little that connects garden herbs to bisexuality except for myself and the fact that I kind of wanted to talk about both in this episode. <laughs> but, you know, it's related in a way. You know, in the same way that I like more than one type of herb but still have preferences, I also like more than one gender but prefer some over others. Absolutely. And that's the tea, my friends. Absolutely. is non-binary. Non-binary gender identity is one term used to describe individuals who may experience a gender identity that is neither exclusively male or female, or is in between or beyond both genders. Non-binary individuals may identify as gender fluid, agender, which means without gender, third gender, or something else entirely. Non-binary individuals can use the pronouns they prefer, which can include they, them, she, her, he, him, a combination of those, such as she, they, or other neutral pronouns, such as zizer, and many more. A link below will outline others if you're curious. This podcast is oriented towards learning new ideas and topics that interest us, and at the same time addressing the current issues that are of confusing origins and dividing grounds. Please leave comments and send in questions or suggestions on other episodes, and we would love to answer your questions in a Q&A episode or directly in another format and to hear your general reaction and feedback. Thank you for listening, and we will continue working towards the future. This is Mia. And Estelle, signing off. And from Adantes to you, fare thee well. <laughs>